Welcome to episode 141, Shame, Parenting, and Mindfulness, Improving Awareness from Potty Training to Adulting, featuring LJ Lumpkin, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. Riaz, and today I am delighted to be joined by LJ Lumpkin. LJ is a colleague of mine. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and he also is a professor at Pepperdine University. And today we're going to be talking about parenting and shame and values and different moments in the parenting journey and how we cope with the challenges of parenting. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, LJ. Thank you for having me, Beth. It's exciting to be here again. So why don't you tell our listeners more about you and how uh, you came to have the specialization and what parenting means to you? So yes, uh, so I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, I've worked with trauma and anxiety disorders, uh, psychosis, um, a lot of extreme states. um, And a lot of my recent work has been working with teenagers, uh, adolescents, and um, early on in my career, I got to work with um, a lot of young, very young clients. Uh, and I was also a parent at the time. So I was experiencing a lot of the anxieties just that parents were going through as I was becoming a parent. Um, and as well as teaching and trying to understand the psyche of, you know, others as well as my own traumas. And uh, while I was preparing for my uh, licensing exams, I started to work on a book. uh, And it really came from journaling my experience as a parent and noticing the emotions that I was having, um, the flashbacks that I was having as my children went through things that I had experiences as a child. Uh, and starting to rework how how my perspective of what a parent is, uh, what kind of parent I wanted to be, and and I noticed through talking it out, working through uh, my own issues, um, and just being authentic with what was coming up for me, I started to connect with my kids a little bit more. And that's where the shame-free potty training, a new approach for a new generation came from. I wanted to make something that was helpful for parents because I know we don't have time. (laughs) There's never enough time as a parent. And uh, there's not a really good, this is how you do it manual. I don't think there ever will be, but just to embrace, you know, our own identities and uh, help model what it feels like to be your authentic self to our kids is something that um, I'm still practicing uh, and trying to work through. I'm glad to have this conversation with you and you and I have talked before about our kids this year. So here as we record this, uh, we're at the end of June 2021. So we are still in the pandemic with things shifting in terms of the severity and different requirements and different uh, shutdown levels, if you will. Um, But this year, as I joked before we started recording, it's like if <laughs> if you're a parent and you haven't experienced shame, especially in the last year, then you probably weren't paying attention um, because of all the pressures of having kids home from school and concerns about safety, the severity of, of what's been going on. Um, I know for me and for the parents that I've worked with, shame is 
just an inherent part of the deal and has been really visceral in the last year. So why don't we start by talking about um, shame and where it comes into parenting, how you see that kind of as a, the framework, you mentioned authenticity, but talking about this framework for shame and parenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think is, you know, when we become parents, it's almost like this, all of a sudden we start having this survival mode come over us because we're having to care for another being for the first time, like really care. Like we have our partners that we care for, but then when another human being becomes our responsibility, it there's, there's almost this inherent feeling that we're never doing enough and we're never present enough. Uh, we have our own I, memories of what our parents did for us and what it looked like for us as children. So when we're not hitting that mark that we think we should be like if we saw our mother or father as as super superhuman where they just got everything done and they weren't stressed at all or they were able to handle everything on a daily basis when we're first starting out we already feel that shame from you know the fear of do i know how to do this will i be able to be good enough um and and wanting things to be perfect uh i think especially for uh parents that have careers and have been driven to kind of be perfectionists or to be top dogs in in their lanes when you get thrown in that parenting lane it is all survival at first uh and that can be very we we start to shame ourselves uh, i i for myself uh i constantly could remember uh just doubting myself uh when i would react to something like a spill or um you know when my child was crying and not knowing really what to do or trying to figure out what to do um it just it really felt like i wasn't doing enough and i felt like i was failing uh and i you know talking with other parents was very relieving for me in that sense because i started to notice oh wow everybody really experiences this at one point um especially with the this year in general this last year um where they weren't able to take breaks from uh from being a parent right like a lot of us stepped up and had to do some of the teaching uh with our kids or most of the teaching uh having questions asked that we didn't have the answers to that can be a really scary thing uh and i think that for me i always want to be able to give answers uh and i had to get past that point of like okay i I don't have all the answers and I, it's okay to say that. Um, no one really told me that at first that you can say, Hey, I don't know. And it's okay. Like we can explore that together. Um, but as I have kind of spoken with my kids about like, you know, just asking them questions, being present with them of like, what is it about this question or what do you think is going on? Um, I've been able to allow myself to let go of some of the shame um, and just processing and looking at where that originally came from. Um, As I mentioned, like flashbacks, um, I notice a lot of times with my kids when they have that first question of like, where do babies come from or where, you know, these these questions that, you know, can be monumental. Uh, I notice the physical reaction I have in my body 
from it, like, oh, I better answer this right. Uh, and all these judgmental ideas that start flooding my, my mind. And when I get back to the basics of, okay, like, they're curious. And so let's explore the curiosity. Let's talk about um, what, what do I know at this point? as a you know as a parent as an adult can i just can i just be honest with you of what i know and not be reactive see how you take the information um that has been when i've probably done my best parenting uh is when i'm getting out of my head uh and i'm just being present in the moment uh not allowing the shame to lead because really the shame comes from fear right um fear of not being enough fear of not giving the right answers uh and as I get more comfortable with that uncomfortability, uh, I find that it, it, it becomes rewarding because my kids know more than they actually let on usually. Uh, now they're five and seven, uh, and I get to work with a lot of different ages, so I get to kind of see that progression, which gives me a little bit of an advantage. I, I know what's coming to an extent, um, but it also just allows the space where there can be exploration, where it's okay not to have the right answer. Um, and I think that, that that allowance has really helped me um, and with my clients to know that they don't have to have it all perfect right away. Uh, there's, there's learning curves. There. I think this conversation about shame and parenting, I, I personally agree with what you said about the idea that with parenting, we don't have some end point where we say, okay, I did a good job. You know, I, I, I got an A. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> right. We don't have that. <laughs> I don't know when yeah. that point is. Yeah. And I know from the research about this concept of shame, you know, we see it, I see it in social media, um, particularly this idea of parent shaming or specifically mommy shaming. And the research has shown that two thirds of women report feeling shamed by family members or by members of the community for decisions they've made, whether they use cloth diapers or regular diapers, whether they have organic food or not organic food and all of these things of this idea of how we should be doing things. I think shame is just so fundamental in this concept about parenting. I know that shame is kind of that idea of I am bad versus guilt. I did something bad. Can you talk about the application of that to parenting and how that matches or, or um, conflicts with, I know, one of your other uh, skills in your areas of expertise is mindfulness. So how do you see these ideas kind of coming together in shame and mindfulness? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I see it as it's how we're self-identifying. If we are identifying as a shameful person, then we, we start to model that behavior or we, we stay in that feeling and experience, whether it's a past experience of, you know, mom is saying that I should be potty training at this age already, or I should be, you know, I should be a stay at home parent versus a working parent. Um, these, these ideas start to have an impact on our, our physiological uh, experience with others, our, our, the ways that we connect. And with mindfulness, again, being able to be in the present moment, um, being aware of stuff from the past and stuff from the future tripping that happens, but bringing it back to, okay, right now in this here and now moment, I, I know if my child is healthy, I am, I am aware of what they have been eating. Um, I, when I come into the room or when I connect with them, they connect with me as well. Like, and so knowing that, okay, I am doing 
everything that I can in this moment to be present with them, to love them, to, to give them affection. And that is to know that that is enough. I think that the good enough mother concept is really important. And I say good enough parent, because I think that, you know, from my perspective, you know, as a father, um, that was again, another thing that was driving me wanting to write something out and get some information out for, for fathers who were taking up, uh, more of the, the at home, uh, presence with their kids. Um, because again, like when I would get too far ahead of myself, that's when I would start to shame myself a lot of the times. Or if I was reflecting so much on past experiences, I would shame myself more. And then that's where the anger, the frustration would come out. And that's what my kids would receive is the anger and the frustration versus if I am able to forgive myself, if I'm able to love myself in that moment or, or notice like, okay, I made a mistake and uh, daddy's going to clean it up right now. And daddy's going to be able to do this. Then again, they're modeling, they're being able to receive that as, okay, that is a norm to be able to make a mistake and then be okay afterwards. Um, that's a, even with breathing, breathing has been my biggest tool and it's what I work with a lot of clients. Um, and even within my family system, we practice breathing techniques. Um, because I, I know I used to deal with a lot of anger when I was younger. Uh, there was a lot of frustration. I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, it, it came out in the form of fighting, um, yelling and, when I notice when I am aware of my nervous system and being able to breathe and slow down, um, then all of a sudden this, this sense of calmness comes in, uh, and I can notice the thoughts. I think one of the biggest things for me right now is the automatic negative thoughts that we have, um, that, that follow through and it becomes this, uh, negative self-talk that we just beat ourselves down and beat ourselves down. And, um, you know, it could be one comment from a, you know, extended family member. And then you just run with that and feel like everybody is doubting you. Uh, and that's not what you need when you need to be present with your kids. Uh, and so that shame, it just follows us um, rather than us recognizing it. Okay. If I'm saying should all day long, that's, that's shame language. That's me shaming myself. I should have done this. I should do this. And when we're practicing that with ourselves, we start practicing that with our kids uh, and they start to take that on. And that's where a lot of these generational cycles start happening. It, you'll start to hear younger kids say, well, I should do this and I should have done that. Um, and that carries into, you know, adolescence, teens, um, and you see those rates of depression and anxiety that are increasing because of social media, because of what they're hearing as these, you should be doing this by now. Um, if you, if we can practice that, that language for ourselves, then again, it becomes easier for us to practice it with our, our children. This idea of mindful awareness I smile and I say, it's like, it's, it's great in theory. And every parent is going to have moments where we may be mindful and some moments where we're not quite so mindful. Um, yes. As you're talking about parenting and shame, one of the things that comes up for me, so I was raised in a Catholic home. And I look at it now with much different eyes as an adult. But this idea that I shouldn't take the cookie when I'm not supposed to, for example, 
because the consequence was super severe, like I was eventually going to somehow burn in hell. You know, (laughs) (laughs) there's this really strong message and idea about what the consequence was if I did this, quote unquote, bad thing. And that this idea, this conversation that you and I are having is so different than the conversation that our parents had, than their parents had, and thinking about parenting over the years relative to the context. You know, that right now we are pandemic parents, for example, so our context is very different. But looking at the context of, um, you know, my parents talked about having uh, drills to hide under their desks in case there was some kind of air raid. Uh, that's something I haven't experienced, but the pressure on the parents to explain that to a child or, you know, keep going back through history, the context keeps changing. How do you see the generational component playing out in what what we were conditioned with as children and then what we are handing to our children? Mm, yeah. I, you know, I think right now, one of the big things is that we've, we had to kind of, we had to isolate. And so that feeling of isolation can cause, you know, that craziness in our mind. Like it, it feels like we're, you know, we're having to experience ourselves for the first time where we don't have the avoidance or we can, oh, it was this person. Like we've really had to experience ourselves now. And so I think that that, that has driven a lot of self-healing work um, in whatever modality, whether it's physical, spiritual, mental. And I think that that is the route where, where hopefully we're going, where explanations, we can explain why we are doing something. Um, we'll have more presence of mind to explain it versus just say, hey, just do this, just listen to me, and that's it. Because, you know, in the grand scheme, when we think about our kids and becoming adults, we don't want them to just follow blindly anything because that's where the fear comes in of like, oh, you might you might join this cult or you might just follow your friends into, you know, into doing something stupid. But if we're trying to raise, uh, you know, strong, independent children that will become independent, you know, adults who uh, know how to fulfill themselves, know what they actually want for themselves, um, giving them the full understanding or what we know it, like being able to talk through it, uh, even in those uncomfortable situations. I think about, you know, the conversations around sex and drugs. Um, A lot of times those get ignored. And for any therapists out there, they know that we get to have those those tough conversations with, uh, with our clients a lot of times because no one has really talked about it because of the shame around the language or being able to express that. I'm I'm optimistic that at this point where, you know, the majority uh, of people have had to spend more time with their families, that there's a comfort level of just being being 100 with your kids, being able to, you know, not come from this place of power, but empathizing with them as another human being who is trying to ex- understand this this world. You know, if you um, I think Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson talks about is like every time you say no to a child, uh, you're denying them uh, a scientific breakthrough in a way. Um, if you can look at them as scientists, they're just exploring this world, explaining and talking through it and uh, allowing them to continue to develop that curiosity is going to lead to them being able to be in these situations where they're going to be able to problem solve versus just react or, um, you know, or live their life according to, I don't want to be punished, or I don't want to step out of the lines. Um, and 
and, and I'm not saying that's easy. <laughs> like, like you said, like in, in theory, it's great. And also I have said no plenty of times to my kids. I have, I have yelled. Uh, they will tell you that, you know, like I've had my moments and, and, and that's the thing the humility in that, you know, I, that is such an important lesson. I think that kids can see that an adult can say they were wrong. <laughs> like, like if you think about it growing up, how many times you might've heard that, you know, it might be on one hand if that, but being able to just say like, you know what, you know, dad was wrong. Like I, 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 I didn't have all the information. Um, and being able to just show them and model that, 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 I think that that will change how this next generation communicate with each other. When we're talking about that um, idea of vulnerability, of humility, of a parent being able to acknowledge and model for their child, you know, I, I made a mistake. I, I was really extreme when I said you couldn't do X, Y, Z. That, you know, if we look at the parenting styles is more authoritative. And I think and I haven't seen the research on this, but it seems like we're moving toward more of a direction of authoritative parenting versus authoritarian, which many of us may have been brought up with. That collision between those two ideals when authoritarian is so based in power and what you're talking about is not the opposite of that, but is an entirely different perspective on power and vulnerability than the authoritarian perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, really, this is, it's trying to find that middle path, right? Because if there are no boundaries, if there's no, you know, if there are no rules, then the child won't feel safe. And then they're just going to make up their own rules. And there is, there'll be the loss of wisdom or, or seeking of wisdom from parents if there are no boundaries. Um, but finding something in the middle, again, where it's like there is, it's based in understanding. Um, it's almost giving your, your children the trust that they can, they can take in information. Um, you know, I, like even a couple of days ago, my daughter, she was just like, she's like, daddy, did you know that, that, you know, a man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, just making sure, you know, like, like there's, there's a wisdom that children have as well. And I think that when we empower them with information that we might feel like, okay, this may be overwhelming or this may be too much. But if we really think about it as like, okay, would we rather have them learn that from someone else that's going to have some other skewed narrative that they've learned from someone else, or we can actually build that kind of setting for them of like, hey, they can approach us and have conversations about it, about things that they're learning about or they're experiencing. Um, again, it sets us up for success when they get to that teenage phase, when they're, when they are adulting, because that's where we really want them to turn to us. Uh, when they're making these really big decisions that are going to affect their lives, we want them to feel that they can come and talk to us about it and be, you know, be 100 with us versus feeling that oh, I can't tell my dad this, I can't tell my mom this. I actually have to, uh, you know, go just talk with my friend who is literally trying to figure this out on their own as well. Um, I, I, I just see that as like 
at first it can be difficult because we have to get past our reactivity to, to whatever's happening. Um, and again, breathing, being mindful, noticing, okay, I don't want to talk about sex, but this is, this is happening right here, right now. So we can talk about it. Um, and then, you know, just kind of leaning into that discomfort, um, with our kids again, trusting them that they'll be able to take the information and then also um, being able to hear them versus just judging whatever comes out of their mouth is wrong or not what we grew up knowing. Um, that clears a path of understanding um, that, again, as they get older, that's how they start to communicate with other people, right? Because it's that practiced norm um, that they've they've been modeled or they've it's been modeled for them, and then they have also just become like, okay, yeah, it's okay to have a converse, conversation with disagreements um, or from new perspectives because I'm actually learning more that way. Uh, they start to thrive in that type of experience. For you as a clinician, when you're working with a family that tends toward a more authoritarian perspective of this is how it should be because, because I said so, you know, <laughs> children should be seen and not heard, that that bit. This idea of injecting mindfulness and more curiosity into parenting, how do you position that when those parents or that parent sitting in front of you was probably raised with the same authoritarian ideals. How do you work with that to help um, create a little bit more flexibility there? Yeah, great question. So first, I usually start off with what's your what's your relationship like with your parents when I'm talking to the parents? I ask, so are you close with your parents? How was it when you were a teenager? Um, I really try to help them connect back with what were you going through at that age? Um, it, it's amazing how most people don't think about it until you ask them that question. And then, then when they start reflecting on it, they can connect with, oh, yeah, that anger that I felt. Or, oh, yeah, my dad kicked me out at this age. Or they, you know, then all of a sudden there's this empathetic connection to what their teenagers might be going through. And it doesn't feel like they have to be as defensive because, what I usually find is that the power piece is that they feel like they're going to lose control or they're going to lose that, that ability to keep their kids safe. Um, and, and then being able to explore what is the actual goal around some of these really hard boundaries that you're setting with your, you know, with your child. Um, and I might do this outside, uh, depending on what the relationship is. You know, if, if the, the child can be there, then yes. If I feel that the child's going to use it as ammo, like my therapist said this and you're supposed to do that, then it's like, okay, we're going to have a separate conversation. Um, and then just preparing the parents of like, you know, this might be a safe word that your child uses to establish this boundary of, hey, this discussion's getting into an argument and I don't want to be in an argument. It's not that they're disrespecting you. It's that they're trying to communicate with you in a different way. So just let's test this out for a week or two and any complaint that you have any real you know like issue you have with it come back to me and we'll talk about it because i can actually talk to you about it and i will we'll, we'll work on it all together um just the understanding that there's you know when when a, a child is coming into therapy you know it will 
sometimes get worse before it gets better because you're changing the family system. You, the communication style that has been a norm is going to be poked and prodded a little bit. Uh, and, and getting the parents to get in that mindset of exploring is where did I even come up with this idea that the, that, that this norm or this rule is, is our code, right? And if they don't even know where it came from, empowering them to go and talk with their parents, you know, find out like, cause they might find out like, yeah, their parents had no idea how to get them in check. Cause they were a crazy teen, you know, like doing, running around, doing things that they just didn't know how to do it. So they had to take that authoritative approach where it's just like, no, you will not be out of the house until, you know, past nine. Um, and so when they have that understanding that, it, you know, some of these rules came from a place of just not knowing, they, the parent might feel more empowered to create new norms within that family system that actually fit the temperament of the children. And, and once the, ch- the child sees that, they feel more empowered to speak their truth, authenticity, what they're feeling, their emotions, because now they know that the parents are actually hearing it. Uh, and that that's something that's usually the disconnect that I see when I'm working with uh, younger, you know, clients is that they they assume that their parents already know how they feel. They already know that they're angry. They already know how hard it is in high school when when a lot of times it's like, hey, your parents didn't grow up with social media in high school. They don't know, you know, they don't know that it doesn't turn off like they know now, but they were able to establish their own identity before Instagram, before YouTube. Uh, my son the other day was even saying uh, to one of my friends, like, do you know that daddy is older than YouTube? You know, and, and, and it's, we have to, we have to remember that now as parents, right? Is that they have so much information now and a lot, there's a lot of misinformation. So, we have to create that safe space for them to feel that they can come to us and talk about things and feel, you know, be wrong or, you know, throw their ideas out there and, and let us actually give some of our insight or our wisdom without it being a shaming way of, no, this is actually how it is, or this is, this is really the truth, right? Like they have their own reality that they're living in and we have to be able to meet them where they're at. One of the things you said that really stood out to me was the idea of working with the child's particular temperament and that concept of context. And I know for me as a parent with multiple kids, you know, not that I ever (laughs) feel like I'm like nailing it. Like we've talked about, there's no, I don't know what the parenting endpoint is where we get this magical report card. I don't know when that happens. (laughs) But with my first child, it's like I figured out, okay, this is what parenting is. And then with another child recognizing, no, that's what parenting is in relation to that kid and the context around that child and their temperament and our opportunities and our privilege and our shortcomings and whatever it is that's going on at the same time as well. And that even for me with my second child of that recognition of Oh, now now there's this whole learning curve because I thought parenting was this, but that's actually parenting that child in that 
framework and now it's this child in, in pandemic framework my my yes. kid doesn't know what people's mouths look like and so right. <laughs> that, that right. was interesting when she is yeah. a toddler starts to see people's faces going oh my goodness everyone has mouths um, yeah. her context is very different in terms of social interaction than what my older child was exposed to but so i'm glad you bring up that piece about temperament and context because i think that's another source of shame that this should be easier. I should be able to do this. I must be doing something wrong because it's not as easy for those parents or it's not as hard for those parents over there or this worked for their child. Why isn't it working for mine? And that there's kind of this shame spiral that can circle right around those thoughts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, 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 that was one of the pieces why I, there's a little bit of, you know, vague language in in the potty training book because i wanted people to really adopt that as this has to fit your style and your temperament your family system what's going on um yeah one child getting raised with grandparents in the house and then another one you know not having you know other family members around as much uh the different changes uh in in how school goes and how um in work environment, if one parent was primarily home for a few years and then all of a sudden they're bat they're working again. Um, I find that a lot, even with adults, you know, looking at like where were you in in uh, in the family system? Were you the firstborn? Were you the middle child? Were you third? Because by that time, by the third child, you know, your parents are veterans, you know, and they know that okay, I can't raise you the, the way I did the first or second one because I I. I bombed it on the second one because I was trying to raise them like the first one, right? Like you start to notice those things and the temperament of the parents changes and, and things become, you know, sometimes more laxed and a child can take that in as, oh, you don't care as much or you don't take as many pictures of me, you know, and, and, and we have to recognize that of like, okay, what are our basic rules and communication in the household that everybody abides by? And then what are, you know, child one, child two, child three, what, like, how do I connect with them? Um, I find that like with my, with my daughter, who's the younger one, I, with athletics, we connect very well. Like she wants to do everything that I'm doing. She, and she's teaching me how to do handstands now. Like she's, that's, that's our connection in a lot of ways with my son. It's more of the intellectual playing chess and playing video games. He does not want to run with me. He does not want to do those things. So, um, for a while I'd beat myself up saying like, why can't I get him to do this stuff? And then I had to realize like, that's, that's not what he's into. That's not his temperament. He's not, and maybe it will be someday and I have to be open to that, but I also need to stop pushing my agenda. And I think that, um, we get tied to what it will look like as parents, like, okay, the scene and we're going to bond over all these different things and, and waking up to like, we might not get along in some of these areas and we might not connect and that's okay, but find what, what they're interested in and be curious about it. Like go into that child's mindset or beginner's mind of like, what is it that you like about this thing? What is it that, that interests you so much about it? And, 
and just diving into that, um, I find that that's what's helped me connect with my son more um, when it comes, you know, he likes making video games at this age. And it's like, okay, so like, what is it about this? Um, why do you like creating it versus playing the game? You know, he likes watching me play it, you know? And, and so um, again, yeah, just curving some of the expectations of what we started out with and then also knowing that there's always a new opportunity to connect with them um, we have to be able to put down what we imagine they should be again it goes back to that should what they should be doing as teenagers um, they're not going to be doing what your neighbors are doing um, they're going to find their own path if we allow them to I can hear as you're talking about this, the mindfulness kind of woven in to this concept, the idea of awareness of the present moment. So not making assumptions about how things ought to be, how they should be, how even they were for us, but that curiosity that for me in, in my practice of mindfulness and meditation I can feel it when I'm coming at a thought with curiosity and I can almost, how I see it is kind of pluck it out of the thought stream and look at it with curiosity instead of these automatic assumptions about what this thought means and it's good or bad that I had it or what it says about me. Um, but to try to walk it back to that awareness of the present moment with curiosity. And I, I you're, you're not even using like the tag words of, of mindfulness and meditation here, but I can hear it in how you position this. Yeah, I, I try to I try to take the tag words out as much as possible because I know that mindfulness has become a very big buzzword. And so people get a little defensive, like, ah, I'm not going to do that. Or, but, but really, it, it is. It's just being able, you know, something that really helped me, I think the book that was so powerful for me was um, The Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn, um, where he is breaking down the MBSR, mindful-based stress reduction. And he is, uh, he even gives examples from his own life with his kids being up at three in the morning, trying to just get them to stop crying and noticing that once he relaxed, once he was able to just breathe, that became the soothing thing that helped his kids stop crying. I would practice those things. Um, even with my children with uh, emotions, uh, I never want to take away their emotions. You know, even though it's hard to hear scream, it's hard to get yelled at and say, you know, here, you, you know, that your child hates you. Uh, and I think we all as parents will hear that at least a hundred times in our life, you know, and um, but being able to show them and model the practices that help me with my anger and my frustration. Uh, we practice counsel in our house um, and that's being able to sit in a circle, do some breathing. You know, we hit our, the sound, uh, the sound gong and everything. And, um, and then we do a talking stick and we just go through active listening skills where we're each person talks the oldest, the youngest, everybody, but whoever's holding that talking piece, everybody practices fully hearing them, fully listening to what they're saying, not distracted by technology. And then, you know, we all get a base of where everybody's at, you know? So I'm not thinking that, you know, my daughter's mad at me because I took away something last night. It's no, she had an issue at school and that's what's making her mad. And I was able to actually hear it, not try to fix it. Cause I know that that's the tendency for parents. We want to fix, we don't want our kids to suffer. Um, but to just pull back and just hear what their experience is, um, all of a sudden just being able to be present with 
your child becomes enough. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I don't need to do everything. I just need to facilitate presence and being mindful. Um, and, and it translates into our work environments, into our, our friends and colleagues. Uh, you start to notice that, but there's just something, there's a pull when it comes to kids that you want to be more for them. Uh, and if we can just, again, get back to that present of, okay, I am I am holding the space. I am making eye contact with you. I am nodding. I am hearing you. And I'm not trying to fix you. I am just letting you have your process. That that is the work. That is that is the the change from probably what we experienced as kids. Um, and we're advancing, um, you know, our kids to be able to be emotionally intelligent. As you talk about this, I'm thinking about the book, um, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And that book talks a lot about um, if a parent is having difficulty sitting with their feelings, then that's where that knee-jerk reaction kind of comes to change somebody else's, that we get overwhelmed with our own feelings and then we kind of excuse the term, we kind of vomit that up all over our kids about what they should be doing or what we expected or what the neighbors think or whatever it is. And that it's a it's a reflection of those moments when we're um, ourselves emotionally immature and not able to hold space even for our own feelings, which goes back to what you were saying about mindfulness. There are all these mind uh, milestones in a parenting time timeline, if you will, about what should be happening, you know, whose child walked sooner. And all of these little competitions that develop among families and friend groups about who did what. And, and like I said, you know, who's feeding organic food, all these little competitions. You chose a milestone of potty training. And that's what you focused on in your book. Can you talk about why you chose that particular moment in time as something that that you wanted to give mindful eyes to mm -hmm. yeah so uh there were a few things that were going on so one it was like i was i was taking more time away from the private practice and working i was trying to spend more time with my kids um i had already potty trained my son and so my daughter was there and we were kind of going through that phase and i just I, I noticed from my friends and clients how much stress went into that particular stage, um, how much, you know, how much they were hearing from different methods or um, almost making it too complicated. Uh, you know, I think that in there I talk about, you know, make it as simple as possible. Don't buy the, the potty with, with bells and whistles that blows up and shoots confetti. It's like, it just makes it more complicated. And, and, and we tend to do that. We complicate a situation that can just be about bonding and connection and achievement. Um, and that's, that was my, my thinking was that, okay, if we can, if we can combine that, you know, there's this desired outcome that we want. We want them to be able to sit on the potty go to the bathroom and feel good about themselves and it not to be where we traumatize them, <laughs> like where it's just this hard fought thing. Um, if that, if that could be practice, you know, and it really, it's a lot about our temperament. It's not as much about the kids because they, they want to succeed. They want to achieve things. You know, it, it's in their nature. It's in all our nature to, you know, feel good about ourselves. It's just that how do we start off 
achieving. Is it do we achieve so we avoid shame or is it that we achieve because it feels good? And so I just thought that if there could be some relief for parents in finding that, oh, okay, if I notice my temperament, if I'm mindful of how I react to things, and if I can give that information to them in in a in a clear and healthy way, um, and I'm I'm doing it based on what their temperament is, what their what their appropriate physiological stance, like when they're ready, rather than when I'm ready or when I feel oh my friend said I need to do this. All of a sudden, that can shape our parenting for you know the next five, ten years, twenty years, and and my hope was is that you know to create a generation that doesn't have as much shame as our generation has. And that's not to, you know, that's not to harp on our parents or, you know, they have what they they had to work with. But if we can start thinking about, you know, the ripple effect of our reactions, not just to our kids, but just to, to everyone, right? It creates our environment. It creates, you know, hostility or it creates peacefulness, bliss. So if we can start to do that in our family systems, right? Then all of a sudden that translate into our community, translate into, you know, more settings. And then we're not as reactive. Um, and I just felt like if I could do that in that space, if I wrote something else or I was uh, focused on a different, you know, issue that, you know, society is dealing with, it, it would be heard because it, it's like, okay, I've heard this guy. I, I've listened to some of the stuff he's put out there and it actually makes sense. Um, I've seen some tangible results, right? And I think in therapy, that's what we're usually working with is clients will come back to us when they actually see some results in their, in their life. Um, when it, they feel a sense of relief, once they get through some event, um, some trial that they've had to go through, that relief, it's like, okay, I, I'm more open to going back to therapy or listen to what a therapist might have as feedback. Um, so it was, it, it was also trying to open up that like mindfulness for groups of parents that might not, you know, might not be able to afford therapy or go to therapy. Um, it might be outside the cultural norm to do that. Um, so I felt by, you know, reading a little bit of information about it, um, Parents might be open to exploring their own automatic negative thoughts, their own shame that they might be holding from years uh, that they never were able to talk about. Um, so I wanted it to kind of be a healing force uh, and just a different lens to look at. One of the things you said that I think just really hit home was, do we achieve because we avoid shame or do we achieve because it feels good? That concept is really, really complex. And we could spend a lot of time just talking about that. Um, but in terms of parenting, one of the things that I recall, I remember in college, a friend telling me about something he had done. Um, it was something that had happened in high school that he broke curfew, something like that. And in response, a parent took away any clothes that fit him. And he was forced to go to school the next day with like pants that were too short and like a shirt that had holes in it. And I remember my friend kind of laughing, but it like wasn't funny at all. Uh, and my my response at the time being in college, just hearing the story of like, look at that tool that was just used of I'm, I'm going to publicly shame my child so that they have some explanation that they need to give 
with a consequence that's completely unrelated to the behavior, you know, that whole conversation about what a natural consequence is, wearing pants that are too small has no relation to um, blowing curfew. And it was so apparent when he was talking about it, just the amount of shame. Um, And it shaped, I remember asking him, did it shape your behavior? Did you break curfew again? And he's like, oh, no, absolutely not. And simultaneously, how could that use of power not affect the relationship between parent and child. Yeah. And it, and it carries on, right? Because that relationship will be in intimate relationships as well. There will always be a power dynamic and how do you establish power or, or safety or control in that relationship? It will be, you know, it will probably be shame-based because it, if it worked, right? Like whenever we do something and it worked, that intervention becomes the, you know, the practice tool. And it just, it, it, it just becomes the only way to do things. Um, I can remember that, uh, getting all my CDs broken at a certain time when I, I, I broke a few rules and, uh, you know, all my music, which was, that was my lifeblood at the time as a teenager. Uh, and, you know, I felt the punishment and also it kind of created more of, okay, I'm going to hide more things. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let my full self be shown all the time. Um, and so that was a lot of my own shame work that I had to work through as an adult. Now it's it's great when we can do that work for ourselves, when we can start, you know, doing healing work as adults, but thinking about how much energy it takes to go through that gauntlet. And, you know, like if we could, if we could cut that in half where, where teenagers are already doing their work or, you know, they don't even have to do work around shame. They, they understand what a natural consequence is like, okay, if I don't get my work done, I probably, you know, I won't be able to go out because I didn't, I didn't get all my work done. Like I still need to finish doing that. I think that, you know, kids, teenagers, you know, preteens, that they, they're smart enough to get that if we can, again, allow them to, but we have to have a set of patience, um, which is frustrating because, you know, like even with the potty, going back to potty training, it's, it's interesting because it's like, I see parents get so mad about that. Like, why don't you get this? Why haven't you got it? It's like, well, we've practiced doing that a long time. You know, you think about when you first started potty training, it was complicated. There's a lot of things going on, but that's where they're at. And for almost every developmental phase, they're going through a lot. Like they're learning how to interact socially. They're learning, you know, what are the, you know, the rules in, in touch, in, in feel, in expressing emotions. Uh, and it changes every couple years um, based on, you know, their friend group and, you know, if they are with adults more, if they're with adults less. Um, so this, it, it, and it's, it's based on our language. We, we tend to just shame each other. Um, and, and so like, that is the mindful thing is like, well, where is this coming from? Like, why, why do I feel the need to tell my friend that we're already advanced to this level uh, when it comes to, you know, swim class or when it comes to all these things? Am I, am I bragging about my kid to, to fulfill my own, uh, you know, need for accomplishment? Or is it that I'm actually really proud of what they're doing? Um, and, and I think that for parents, we have to be mindful of that because as an athlete, a lot of my 
motivation for success was externally driven. I loved the crowd. I loved getting trophies. Um, I loved to know I was better or faster than someone. Uh, and then when I was done being an athlete at 22, done competing, depression, anxiety, self-medicating, all those things came in that I had to work on. So it's not that we're preparing them for success. We're actually just avoiding the things that they're going to have to deal with. And then they have to deal with it at an extreme level versus, you know, when they're younger to just become self-motivated. How simple to choose a concept like potty training, because as I think about that, it's, it's, it would be so easy and it is so easy for a parent to slip into, well, do you want to be the only kid that goes mm-hmm. to XYZ grade level or at that party that is still wearing pull-ups? And right yes. there is just that shame. So so looking at, let's use potty training as the milestone and this checkbox for development with acknowledgement that we're talking about neurotypical children that don't have other comorbid co-occurring considerations. So with that, with that said, what does mindfulness look like? Is it that initial process as a parent that we catch ourselves about to jump into? Well, do you want to be the kid that blah, 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 and that we just use shame as a motivational tool? Well, also kind of putting our child out on an ice floe. <laughs> like, so what, what does it really look like? That's a great question. For me, it's first checking in with our own motivations behind it. Like I said before, is just noticing, okay, what is driving this? Is this, is this my shame coming up? And, and being able to ask yourself that. It might be journaling it. I know in the moment, you might have to just say, you know what, mommy, daddy I, needs to take a breathing moment. That's what I would label it. Because then, you know, the, you're going to go breathe, notice what's coming up, where the frustration is. And then coming back, if you can articulate, you know, what's going on or how you're, you know, why we're doing something um, without saying you need to, you should, um, you know, anything with an ud in it usually is on that shaming basis. Um, and then, you know, being able to ask, like, what is what is working, what is not working, um, what is helpful, what isn't helpful, um, because a lot of times kids will tell us if we allow them to tell us, like, hey, when you do this, it it feels like you're what, like, you being in the bathroom with me feels. <laughs> I can't do it. My tummy hurts, you know, like they will say it in their own language. And I think that is a big piece of the communication, knowing that they're not going to communicate like we do. Um, they will communicate with their eyes. They will communicate with their hands. They will um, they will do it out of, you know, like you'll see them clench up. You'll see their body clench up and being able to say, <sighs> like do a breath. So they see, okay, this is what I do to relax. Um and then again, the modeling, um, when we notice that we're getting angry or we start yelling or just that being able to say it out loud, okay, daddy is getting angry. Mommy's getting angry right now. Um, and I am going to slow down because I am not angry at you. Um, being able to clarify where your frustration is coming from, um, because kids and not just kids, human beings, they run with assumptions. You know, like if I see you with a furrowed brow staring at me, not breathing, I'm going to say best pissed off at me, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's the same with kids, right? They will create a story. They will create a narrative of why they are 
are not good, uh, why they're bad. And it's usually very self-absorbed, which is right for that age. You know, it is like the narrative is based around them. So they are the problem and they create that. So being able to just notice like, okay, I'm not breathing right now. <sighs> I need to breathe and I'm going to practice breathing right here, right now. Um, and, and then also being, a, again, calling it out when you make a mistake, you know, just, you know, radical acceptance. It's, it's, it's a term that gets used and thrown around, but really accepting like, Hey, I make mistakes and I, I mess up. Uh, and once we do that, we can move forward. You know, it's usually when we hold on to the mistake and the judgment and the shame, and then we just take it with us to that. We can't be in that present moment. As a parent to give up the heavy handed use of power, I think that can feel scary because power can be used to control and to influence. And it's a way for us when we feel out of control to get back in control because we put somebody else in their place and get our kind of primary position back. Thinking about my own experience and also my experience in the last year of working with parents, but also talking with parents, whether that's clinical or personal, so intimately the awareness of lack of control and power. And I think for many of us as parents, when there was just chaos on our doorstep for a myriad of reasons, you know, all those reasons different for every body, for every family. Um, but that all the more that it's so tempting to go into power over as a parent, because we want to get control because what we're seeing on the news makes us feel out of control. Yeah. And, and I think even having this conversation, I think there's this element of healing that's in there. And going back to where you started about this concept of self acceptance of self love, of meeting ourselves where we're at, because all of these things are really normal and rational reactions to things being out of control. Spot on. I mean, I, I think that question of like, yeah, what are you afraid of? You know, like, I just keep going back to that when, you know, when I'm, when I notice myself out of control, I, I do ask myself on a regular basis, what are you afraid of? Where is the fear coming from? Because usually our anger is what's shown, especially for parents, you know, kids see us angry and we know that anger is a secondary emotion. It comes from loss or fear usually. So it's, okay, did we just lose their innocence or lose control, right? Or are we afraid that something bad's going to happen if they don't understand this concept or if they don't learn from this past experience? Because then when we actually have that information, there's, there's an ease that comes in where it's like, okay, I know why I'm trying to get this message across. I know why I'm angry about it. And so being able to just ask yourself that as a parent of, okay, Fear or loss, what, what is it? And what is this internal thing that's happening? And it could be something from our own childhood, um, or it could be something that, that we just saw on the news because we were all being pumped with a lot of fear. And even if you turned off the news, you still had it because as a society, we were going through something that no one really had a full understanding of what that meant for the next year or the next five years. Um, so just being able to recognize that, then we can do something about it. You know, like I think, right, as a therapist, a lot of the stuff we see is that first it has to be acknowledged. 
And then we can actually do some work around it. We can actually make some change in how we're going to react to things. I really appreciate the simplicity of that idea of working with parents to ask themselves, what am I afraid of? One of my moments that I'll never forget um, early on in the pandemic, having to take one of my children somewhere, I think it was the doctor or something like that. And that was in the days where we were wiping down groceries with Clorox wipes and no one had Clorox wipes. We didn't have toilet paper, you know, and (laughs) all of of these things. And I remember the franticness I felt when I was having difficulty with my son convincing him to wash his hands for the millionth time. And that I just felt this paralyzing fear because of how much unknown there was. And I, my own reflection of these moments in history that families have been experiencing over the ages in different contexts where there's fear of, you know, judgment by the proverbial Joneses, but then there's also true fear of loss of life of, you know, if, if my child rides their bike into the street, what can happen, you know, and if we're not washing our hands and being careful, careful during a pandemic, what can happen? But whether it's on the big level or on a small level, I really appreciate the simplicity in what you're saying of what am I afraid of just cuts right through to that idea of power and control and fear and shame and kind of brings immediate awareness if we're listening to what's going on with us and where we're losing our mindfulness as parents. And, and recognizing that that's not, it's not going to be, again, the theory piece, right? It, it, it's not going to be perfectly practiced. You know, it, it's, it's repetition though. If we can get back to that space, if we can keep doing that and like even journaling, that's, that has been one of my biggest tools because I've been able to go back and look at it from a space where I'm not, I've already been through that. Like, like I, I'm not experiencing that very well, but I could see the extreme state I was in when I was experiencing it, how, you know, my whole nervous system was hijacked, you know, by fight, flight, or freeze where it's like, okay, so I know why I was doing that. I know where it was coming from. And so what would I what would I want it to look like in the future? And that's kind of the piece of, you know, when we are in meditation, you know, if we're not just doing a present moment focused meditation, being able to kind of start looking at the manifestation. How would I want to show up for my kids when these extreme things happen? How would I how would I what what feeling would I want them to be able to feel? We don't have ownership over their feelings, but what would I want them to feel from me? Would I want them to feel a sense of calmness? Um, do I want them to feel my frantic energy? Like, what do I want in those situations moving forward? And it, and knowing that it's not going to look ideal, but we have some concepts of, okay, well, when I do breathe or when I take a moment rather than just rapid fire answering, I actually do a little bit better in those situations, right? We start to have some evidence that, that tells us, hey, you're a good parent because you actually care. You're actually being present with these kids. Um, and sometimes we need, we need that motivation from ourselves, right? Rather than the obsessive negative thoughts of we're not, we're not showing up enough or we're not doing enough, but being able to look back like, Hey, actually I handled that a lot better than I thought, you know, and being able to do some of that self care that we need as parents. 
LJ, you and I could keep talking on this topic, and I think there's a lot to be said, but I appreciate you being here and sharing these concepts with us. For our listeners that want to learn more about you and about your work, what's the best way to do that? So you can find me at uh, www.nomadhealingpractices.com. I have uh, some links to some other podcasts that I've been on and uh, my book, Shame-Free Potty Training, uh, A New Approach for a New Generation is on Amazon and it can also be found on that website. Um, I will have another book coming out within hopefully this year. It's called uh, Climbing Out of the Box, A Path Towards Healing for black and white America um, explores a lot of my own experience going through uh, living this life as a biracial uh, person and also just some of the things I have healing modalities I've worked on because uh, our self-exploration and being able to talk through things is a process of healing uh, and that can be painful but if it can be normalized that we all can and and will go through this um, that I think that conversations about healing will expand. Uh, and also you can find me on all social media platforms, Instagram, uh, LJ underscore the underscore nomad and uh, LinkedIn as well, where every Monday I post uh, a mindful Monday, uh, five minute video of just different lenses you can look through to kind of help you through your week uh, and stay present. Awesome. Always wonderful to talk with you, LJ. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Beth. It's an honor to be here and always a pleasure to speak with you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.